Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Here we look at various ways to be healthy and how we can get information on our own so we can be proactive in our health. Today we're going to look at hypnosis and various alternative approaches and group support, etc. And with us we have Dr. David Spiegel. He is a Wilson Professor and Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford Medical Center. He's the director of the Center on Stress and Health and the medical director for the Center for Integrative Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. He's been on the academic faculty there since 1975, and he was a chair of the faculty senate from 2010 through 2011. He's got 40 years of clinical and research experience studying the psycho-oncology, stress, health, pain control, psychoneuroendocrinology, sleep, and hypnosis. He's conducted randomized clinical trials involving psychotherapy for cancer patients. He's published 12 books, 383 scientific articles, and 167 book chapters on hypnosis, psychosocial oncology, stress physiology, trauma, and psychotherapy. He was a member of the working groups on stressor and trauma-related disorders for the DSM, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, the number four and five. He's a past president of the American College of Psychiatrists and the Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis. He also is a member of the National Academy of Medicine. So welcome, Dr. Spiegel. It's such an honor to have you. You are one of my favorite teachers. Thank you, Dr. Susan. That makes me proud. I'm glad you remember. That's good. How could I forget? Uh, <laughs> Rounding with both you and your father, and the patients seem to be very confused at that moment. <laughs> that's right. Well, at least we knew the difference, I think. That's, uh, that's yeah, good. Well, on a good night, on a good day, yes. But right. speaking of your father, both your parents are psychiatrists. Did that they influence were, yes. you becoming a psychiatrist? I'm sorry, did what? Did that influence your decision to become a psychiatrist? Well, they told me I was free to be any kind of psychiatrist I wanted to be, and uh, I I took them up on it, actually. Um, The dinner table conversations were very interesting. They talked a lot about their work and their patients, and I just found it interesting, so I decided to uh, follow in the family tradition. And what got you interested in hypnosis? Well, um, actually, that that does have to do with my father. He um, uh, was studying to be a psychoanalyst in the 1940s, and um, he was uh, his analyst told him that um, there was a, a German physician named Gustav Aschaffenberg who had escaped from Germany. He was Jewish and was offering to teach young army doctors. My father had just enlisted in the army after Pearl Harbor. And um, he, uh, Schaffenberg said, I want to teach what I know, which is hypnosis. So my father took some training with him, found himself using it in combat to help with pain and post-traumatic stress. And um, when he came back, he went back to his psychoanalytic training. But um, he continued to be interested in hypnosis, as did, as did other people, and he started focusing more and more on brief treatment with hypnosis rather than lengthy psychoanalysis. And so I watched, I watched him make some movies about his, um, his patients, got interested in it, and when I went to medical school, I took a course uh, at Mass General with Tom Hackett. And uh, my, the first patient I treated with hypnosis was a young asthmatic a 15-year-old girl bolt upright in bed, unresponsive to epinephrine. They were going to do general anesthesia to break her asthma attack and start her on steroids. She'd been hospitalized every month for three months. And I um, had was fresh from my hypnosis course, so not knowing what else to do, I said, you want to learn a breathing exercise? And she nods. And her mother's standing next to the bed in tears. And 
So I got her hypnotized, and then I said, I realized we hadn't gotten to asthma in the course yet. So I said, well, um, each breath you take will be a little deeper and a little easier. And I don't know who was more surprised, me, her, or her mother. But within five minutes, she was lying back in bed, and clearly the wheezing had stopped. And um, so I ran into my uh, intern afterwards expecting a pat on the back, and he told me that the nurse had been in the room, run out, filed a complaint with the nursing supervisor that I had violated Massachusetts law by hypnotizing a minor without parental consent. Massachusetts has a lot of weird laws, but that is not on the list. And so he said, well, you have to stop doing this. I said, why? You want to put her on steroids and you wanted to give her general anesthesia? He said, well, it could be dangerous. I said, it's not as dangerous as what you wanted to do. And he said, well, you can't follow her. I said, I'm in Boston. I'll follow her. So he said, well, you have to stop doing it. And I said to him, tell you what, uh, as long as she's my patient, I'm not lying to her. So you can take me off the case if you want. But until you do, I'm going to keep doing this with her. So there was a battle over the weekend between the intern, the resident, the chief resident, the attending. And they finally came up with a radical idea on Monday. It had never been tried before. They said, let's ask the patient. And <laughs> the patient said, I like this. And so she kept doing it. She had one subsequent hospitalization and then studied to be a respiratory therapist. So I figured that anything that could help a patient that much, that fast, and that safely uh, frustrate the uh, nursing hierarchy, violate a non-existent Massachusetts law, had to be worth looking into. And it was a real-life lesson for me and how, you know, we, we were trained always to think of what the newest medication is or the newest surgical procedure. But sometimes just using the machine that sits on the top of our shoulders as a whole is a lot more powerful than tinkering with it. And that's what I did, and that's what I've been doing ever since. That is so impressive, and it took such courage to stand up against all the authorities at that time or any time. Thanks. Well, I, I was sort of watching my career pass <laughs> pass by me, but, uh, at the, you know, the thing is, it was just so visibly obvious. You know, this wasn't subtle. It was just so clear that this had helped her that I couldn't let go of it. Oh, so how did you get interested in complementary and alternative medicine? Well, partly it was through hypnosis. That is, you know, hypnosis is one of these funny fields where to mainstream medicine, it's alternative and to alternative medicine, it's mainstream. You know, I'm, I don't belong to either club, um, but it is, you know, it's the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. It's the first time a talking interaction between a doctor and a patient was thought to have therapeutic potential. Uh, but it's always been associated with weirdness and dangling watches and purple capes and and so uh, people have continued to be suspicious of it. And again, it was just that we now have, you know, randomized clinical trials that show that it reduces pain and stress and shortens procedure time and helps people with chronic pain. And it's a hell of a lot safer than opiates and fentanyl. Um, and so uh, I just stayed with it because it works. And now we have some pretty good idea of how it works, what happens in the brain when people are hypnotized. So we're trying to bring science to it. And my hope was, you know, build it and they will come. You provide a scientific evidence base and people will get it. And there is more interest in it, but not as much as it deserves. Well, it sounds like the club that you belong to, I and my listeners are also in that club. So you're in the right place. Thanks. So I'm glad to hear that. Have you used it in your own life or with your family? Sure. Um <laughs> When I used to put my kids to sleep with it when they were little. You know, I'd have them take an imaginary rafting trip down a river and, you know, let themselves get more and more calm and go to sleep. One night I was busy and I I said, just go to sleep, kids. And my son toddles out to the shed in the back where I was working and said, Dad, I need a professional. I can't go to sleep. So I would um, I'd use it with them. I, I had... A major surgery done on my shoulder. I had recurrent dislocations. The surgery was done with hypnosis, but afterwards I, did, I wasn't using any of the pain meds. I was just doing self-hypnosis for pain control. And the, the I went and read the note that the surgical resident had written, which was, patient using very little pain meds, we mustn't have cut many nerves. <laughs> well, I, you know, I have an incision from one side of my shoulder to the other, so I can assure you they cut nerves, but that's the only way they could understand it. So, yeah, I've used it for pain control and stress management, things like that, sure. 
And I understand I actually, you didn't I, have much pain when your wife went through childbirth with it. That's either. exactly right. That's just what I was going to say. That my uh, my son was a first child, ten pounds, and um, my wife used hypnosis as the only anesthesia, and I had no pain at all. And labor was about ten hours, um, and she was in. She felt in control of what she was doing, and there were times when she really had to push in a hurry, and she did. Uh, our daughter was seven and a half pounds and labor was only four hours. We had breakfast and she said, I think I remember what this is like. And we were having lunch together after the delivery. No, no epidural, no other anesthesia. Um, so, and my wife and I are still talking to each other. So it wasn't that bad. So um, it works. Yeah. So you liken hypnosis to the oldest profession? Yes, I do. Yeah. Everybody's interested in it, but nobody wants to be seen in public with it. Um it's people still consider it odd or strange, and it's been at the beginning of many very important movements. So, uh, Freud um, studies in hysteria is about hypnosis with with Joseph Breuer, and he he writes in his autobiography that he, he uh, was relieving a patient of her attacks to pain of pain by tracing them back to a traumatic origin. He said suddenly the the, the patient woke up from the trance and threw her arms around my neck. And Freud wrote, I was modest enough not to attribute this to my own irresistible personal attractiveness. <laughs> so Freud discovered transference that day, and he decided that that was the real element at work beneath hypnosis. So he moved his chair around from the side of the couch where he was sitting to do hypnosis to the back so patients could lie with their eyes open uh, and free associate without staring him in the eye for the whole hour. So Freud started psychoanalysis with hypnosis. And I, w I visited his study at the end of his career in London. And in the sacred spot over the couch, he had a picture of Charcot demonstrating hypnosis. So at the end of his career, and he'd studied with Charcot early in his career, uh, he wrote that the pure gold of analysis might well have to be alloyed with the baser metal of suggestion. Oh, and he was right. And there are other stories like this. There was a woman who, who was treated by a disciple of Mesmer's named Phineas Quinby. Um, she had spinal weakness, which meant she had to be carried around from room to room by her father. And this began to get embarrassing when she not only got married, but got pregnant. And so she went to see Quinby, who cured her with animal magnetism, they called it then, or hypnosis, and of her spinal weakness. And she corresponded with him. She was very happy about this. There's some speculation they had an affair. Nobody really knows for sure. But about five years later, she gets a letter out of the blue and announcing that he has suddenly died. And the next day, she went into a period of mourning and um, reflection and emerged from it uh, with the recognition that it wasn't really animal magnetism that had cured her. It was the word of God. You know who this was? Mary Baker Eddy. That is correct. And so we owe to... Hypnosis, not only psychoanalysis, but one of the few remaining newspapers in the United States. And yet, hypnosis gets no credit at all. You know, people decide it's really something else, but it just won't go away. Well, Mesmer ran into some particular challenges with the committee that evaluated him. Yes, well, Mesmer started it all. That's exactly right. And he... Uh, <laughs> Um, he would induce these uh, uh, seizure-like episodes in patients who often felt better after he did this. He decided that there were magnetic fields that went awry in these patients' bodies, and if he put his magnetic fields next to theirs, they would get better. I don't know quite why he didn't get worse. But he became very popular in Vienna, so he left his wife and family there and moved to Paris, where he was successfully competing with the leading French physicians of the day. Now, the French physicians of the day were not all that popular. Voltaire wrote to his brother, we did everything we could to save father's life. We even sent the doctors away. <laughs> um, and so the French medical society got King Louis XVI to convene a panel to investigate. Um, and uh, the panel included our own Benjamin Franklin, who was having a great time in Paris, um, the famous chemist Lavoisier, who was a few months later beheaded in the revolution, um, and uh, a doctor well-known for his work in pain control, Dr. Guillotin, the inventor of the guillotine, who kind of created the mind-body problem. And, he sure uh, did. This, this group concluded that hypnosis was nothing but heated imagination. Now, that's not a bad... I, th I think it's probably true in many ways, uh, but it was considered devastating at the time, and that was the end of Mesmer's career. 
so the founder of the field had a rough go as well. Wow, it sounds like there's a lot of resistance, and there still seems to be from the insurance companies, etc. So that's kind yeah. of unfortunate. Yeah, it is unfortunate. But the insurance industry is so corrupt that this is this is low down on my list of complaints about them. So. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. All right. You know, so tell us what hypnosis is. Hypnosis is a state of highly focused attention. Uh, with a relative suspension of peripheral awareness. It's something like um, looking through a telephoto lens of a camera. What you see, you see with great detail, but you're less aware of the context. So it's got three major features, this absorption, this focal attention, which is intense, dissociation or putting outside of conscious awareness, things that in theory could be or are in consciousness. And then the part that scares people the most is suggestibility, the sense that people will go along with what somebody says uh, without thinking about it. Now, nobody who's hypnotized is incapable of refusing to do what anybody asks them to do, but it is true that you're less likely to because you're not in one of those judge and evaluate modes. And I think it scares people because, look, we're social creatures. You know, I, I defy anyone here to tell me that um, they didn't have one of those, it seemed like a good idea at the time, experiences in life. You know, we are influenced by other people. In hypnosis, you're more likely to be influenced and less likely to critically judge. And if you've got a good therapist, that's a terrific thing. You're less likely to defeat a good idea with old, bad ideas. Um, but in other circumstances, it could be troubling. So how does it work? How, what does it do to the brain? Uh, we now have evidence that um, very specific things happen in the brain when you're hypnotized. We use functional magnetic resonance imaging in a study with NIH support to look at what happens in the brain. And there were two parts. We discovered that people who are highly hypnotizable have greater functional connectivity between the executive control network as part of the frontal cortex that is the part that I'm using now to try and explain this to uh, your listeners, um, and a part that's called the salience network. So it helps you decide what's important and what isn't, what you pay attention to and what you ignore. And it's right smack in the middle of the front of the brain. It's called the anterior cingulate cortex. It's like an inverted C. Um, and so that part of the brain fires up when you're worried about something. When an air traffic controller sees three planes converging on one runway, that part of his brain is firing away because he knows he's got to solve a problem in a hurry. What happens in hypnosis is that you turn down activity in that region. So you're less likely to worry about what's going on. And you have coordinated activity between the executive control region uh, and this salience network. So you're, you know what you're thinking about and you're not worried about the possibility that it could be something else. The second thing that happens is this executive control region is functionally connected. So you have similar activity to a little grape-sized part of the brain called the insula. And it's part of the salience network, but also mind-body connection. So you're in a mental state where your brain is specifically geared to send signals to your body and help control things in your body that normally you can't, like pain, for example, or in other studies we've done secretion of gastric acid, or you can alter perception, visual perception as well. So the brain is configured to maximize its ability to control what's happening in the body. And the third part is that there is in inverse connectivity that is an inverse relationship between the functional part of the executive control network and a deep structure in the brain that is what we call the default mode network. It's sort of the part of your brain that's working when you're just ruminating and not doing anything in particular. And so you think about yourself and what it means to be doing what you're doing and what people think about you. And um, that, we think, is the basis for the dissociation. So you're not reflecting on what you're doing. You're just doing it. And so those are the activities that we've identified in the brain using functional magnetic resonance imaging among highly hypnotizable people who are in hypnosis. What's particularly interesting is some of the studies you've mentioned in the past, not in the mind-body connection. Not only does our brain influence our, our body, but it seems our body can influence the brain, and hypnosis can alter how our brain works in addition to our perceptions. For example, yes. can you discuss the color studies? Yes. So in the color study, um, I was working with a colleague who was then at Harvard who was a bit skeptical, and he said, you know, 
you've shown that you can just turn down, you know, pain perception in the brain. But I want a, I want a situation where the person has to continue to pay attention. They can't just sort of shut their brain down. And let's see what happens. So we use positron emission tomography, PET scanning, to identify the parts of the brain that process color vision. So it's in the back of the brain, the, the lingual and fusiform gyri in the back of the brain. And the blood flow increased when people looked at color and decreased when they looked at black and white. And we took a group of highly hypnotizable subjects and said to them, uh, we want you to drain the color from the color grid and in another condition, add color to a grid that was black, white, and gray. And they were able to do it. They said the color grid looks black and white and the black and white grid looks like color. And when they did that, they actually changed blood flow in the color processing regions in a way that was consistent with their belief about what they saw. So they increased blood flow if they thought they were looking at color when it was black and white. And they decreased blood flow in those regions when they thought it was uh, black and white and looking at color. So I call that my believing is seeing experiment, that you... Um, you can actually change not just how you react to what you see, but what you actually see. And also pain studies that did similar things. It shocks to the wrist that, you know, did similar things to the brain, didn't they? That's exactly right. So the original study was using uh, EEG, so what we call event-related potentials, where you have a series of EEG electrodes on the scalp, and you deliver a series of shocks to the wrist, and you can record the pattern of collected electrical activity at the scalp. Um, And we took a group of highly hypnotizable subjects, gave them a bunch of shocks to the wrist, and sure enough, you could see the EEG response pattern. So in another part of the experiment, I hypnotized them and said, your hand is in circulating ice water. It's cool, tingling, and numb. Filter the hurt out of the pain. And what we saw was that major components of the EEG just went away. So the first component at a tenth of a second after the shocks were administered just disappeared. And the components at uh, two-tenths and three-tenths of a second after uh, were half as big. So this is another example of believing is seeing, only this time was believing is feeling, that it wasn't that they felt the same intensity but didn't mind it as much. They literally felt less pain. Uh, than they did uh, receiving the same shocks in the same place, uh, but without the hypnosis. That's extremely interesting, but the wording is also important and can affect which parts of the brain reacts, doesn't it? That's correct. Um, So uh, a series of very interesting MRI studies done by Pierre Rainville and his colleagues at the University of Montreal, they gave a similar set of instructions. Um, uh, In one case, they reported basically replicated what we did using MRI. So they said your hand is cool, tingling, and numb. It'll filter the hurt out of the pain. And they got pain relief, and they saw reduced activity in the somatosensory cortex. So it's sort of, if you put your hand on the top of your head, your right hand is where your index finger uh, and thumb are uh, just back of the middle part of your head. That's the part of the brain that processes sensory input. And he reduced activity in that region. So that was the mechanism for the reduced pain perception. In another experiment, he gave the same painful stimulus, but this time he said, well, the pain is there, but it won't bother you, which is a lot of the way people talk when they're on opiates. And there, he also got pain relief, but now it was a different part of the brain. It wasn't somatosensory cortex. It was that anterior cingulate cortex that I talked about. So just changing the words you use changes the part of the brain that provides you with hypnotic analgesia. So it kind of leads to the conclusion that if you want to focus on something, uh, don't use any negatives. Like don't say, I don't want to be fat because the brain will pick that up. Uh, You might say, I look skinnier and more beautiful every day. For example, try not to think of a green elephant and what comes to your mind. That's right. Well, when I think of a green elephant, I think of our current president, but that's another story. Um, oh, I, think, I hadn't <laughs> seen him as green, but other things come to mind. Money. <laughs> but I, I um, no, that's exactly right. That, that telling someone not to think about something um, is a good way to get them to think about it. And that's a mistake in a lot of when we use self-hypnosis to help people stop smoking, for example, I don't tell people you won't want to smoke or, you know, hate cigarettes. Um, what I do 
is focus instead on their commitment to respect and protect their body. So um, I, I say think of your body as if it were a trusting, innocent child that has to take into it, even if it's damaged by whatever you put into it. Um, and your body can't tell you in words the way a child can't. Um, it tells you with a cough, shortness of breath, chest pain. So focus on respecting and protecting your body, on the idea that you need your body to live, and you owe your body respect and protection. So you're focusing on what you're for, not what you're against. And as you say very well, it, that works so much better. Yeah. And so how does hypnosis compare to mindfulness, meditation, visualization? Well, there are similarities and there are differences. There, are The similarities... Um, are they're both, you know, sort of mind management techniques. They come from different traditions. Hypnosis is more Western. It's more focused and, and more problem-solving in nature, whereas the idea in the Eastern approach is not that you meditate to solve a problem or reduce pain, but you do it because it's a good way to kind of manage your life and your experience in life. And by the way, you might get relief from stress or pain. The, the structure of it is different. With hypnosis, you might do a self-hypnosis exercise for five or ten minutes, four or five times a day. With mindfulness, you, you sit and meditate for half an hour twice a day, something like that. There is some evidence now of differences in what happens in the brain. So Judson Brewer at the University of Massachusetts has done some brain imaging studies showing reduced activity in that default mode network, the posterior part of the cingulate cortex, in people who uh, are experienced meditators, which is somewhat different from, it's related, but different from the findings that we have with hypnosis. An interesting corollary is when I did the TM Siddha program, it was a great mm-hmm. measure of spiritual prowess that we could fly. So here I am in a room full of eagerly spiritually aspiring people, and we hopped all around the room. That's a very interesting connection between the mind and the body, the body producing what our mind really wanted. So it was just kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. We were yeah, hopping around the room. It was great fun. Hopping around the room is good. That's not something we typically do with hypnosis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so what is hypnotizability? Well, it turns out that people differ substantially in their ability to experience hypnosis. This um, is less the case in childhood. So most children are very hypnotizable, as you know. You know, all eight-year-olds are in trances all the time. You call them into dinner, they don't hear you. And it's why childhood is such a wonderful time in life. Work and play are all the same thing because they tend to have this intense self-altering attention most of the time. So, But what tends to happen is that as we go through adolescence and we develop what Piaget called formal operations where you think where the logical kind of uh, exceeds the experiential. Uh, and, you know, if you show a tall skinny bottle and a short fat bottle, um, the kids will invariably say the tall bottle is bigger, even if it actually holds less liquid than the, than the short fat one. But uh, as you, we grow up, we apply logic, and some of us lose our hypnotizability in the course of applying logic. So by the time you're in your early 20s, your hypnotizability is pretty set. About two-thirds of the adult population are at least somewhat hypnotizable. About 10% of that population are extremely hypnotizable. So a third are no longer hypnotizable. And we've discovered in neuroimaging that there is higher functional connectivity, that is coordinated activity between that executive control region and the uh, salience network, the anterior cingulate in highs and lows. And in fact, highly hypnotizable people will spontaneously have hypnotic-like experiences. They'll get so caught up in a good movie, they forget they're watching a movie and enter the imagined world. They'll get lost in a sunset. Um, So if you have the ability, you tend to use it spontaneously. If you don't, you can't. So are there personality traits associated with hypnotizability? Yes. The people who are highly hypnotizable um, tend to rate themselves as being trusting. They, uh, they tend to trust people easily. They see things from the other person's point of view very easily. One of my patients, uh, who is very hypnotizable, uh, described herself as a disciple in search of a teacher. She was always looking for someone whose experience she could affiliate with. So they tend to be intuitive, trusting, sometimes a little bit gullible. They can be taken in by uh, people uh, fairly easily. 
Uh, low hypnotizables tend to be more head-oriented, more judgmental, critical, evaluative, um, and they sort of don't swallow things easily. They they structure things cognitively a great deal. And so, whereas therapy for a high tends to be just, here's what to do, now go ahead and do it. For a low, they find that offensive. And so you have to negotiate with them about what makes sense to them to do. There are people in the middle, uh, we, we call the highs Dionysians, people who just go along with the flow and the experience. The lows Apollonians, people who like to think things through for the god Apollo, the god of reason. And the people in the mid-range we call Odysians, uh, for Odysseus, who get engaged in situations and then pull back and reflect. So they sort of engage and disengage. And that tends to typify the three personality types of people who are at varying levels of hypnotizability. Are the hypnotizable folks more creative? Well, people think that. And I think in some kinds of creativity, high hypnotizables tend to be sometimes in the visual arts, uh, uh, art or architecture. Uh, actors and actresses are often very hypnotizable. They, they, you know, the method in acting is a kind of hypnotic-like state where you become that person, you enter them. And very often good actors and actresses, you say, you were great. And they say, oh, wow, what did I do? You know, I just, I just became that person, that's all. So uh, that kind of creative role-playing is something that being highly hypnotizable can prepare you to do, whereas it is true that less hypnotizable people tend to be more in the sort of STEM fields, you know, mathematics and logic and calculation uh, than, than highly hypnotizable people. Um, uh, a month ago, Robert Lustig talked about dopamine and the American corporations hacking our mind. And is hypnotizability correlated with dopamine levels? Yeah, it actually is. We found that um, uh, we we did a study where we had measured hypnotizability and had samples of cerebrospinal fluid, the fluid that that bathes the brain, and uh, there was a rather marked correlation between the level of a dopamine metabolite, homovanillic acid, and measured hypnotizability. And the parts of the brain that I've been describing tend to be dopamine-rich regions in the brain. There's also evidence that highly hypnotizable people are more likely to have a specific form of a gene called COMT, catechol-O-methyltransferase, which is in the dopamine pathway. And the ones with their particular form, their heterozygous for methionine and valine, tend to have better ability to do figure ground discrimination. So uh, there's a genetic difference in people who turn out to be highly hypnotizable as well, and it is related to the dopamine system in the brain. So would hypnotizability decrease when people get Parkinson's disease, where dopamine tends to decrease? Well, it's a good question. I don't think anybody has actually studied that carefully, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me uh, that with dopamine depletion you get that. Now, of course, some of the tests we do involve physical movement in Parkinson's patients have trouble with that. But I can tell you, I have a video of a young, a relatively young man who got toxic Parkinsonism, and um, he had been going through a neurosurgical procedure to implant an electrode to do deep brain electrical stimulation. And he interrupted the surgery. He couldn't stand lying there. So the surgeon had to close up and wasn't happy. And he said to me, Spiegel, fix this guy so he can, you know, tolerate the procedure. So while I was training him to go through the procedure, I noticed that when he went into hypnosis, his tremor in his right hand stopped. And I had him imagine that he was on the beach in Hawaii playing near the ocean with his kids. And it was so vivid for him. He he was pretty hypnotizable that I asked him, he said I, he, that he was afraid of getting a sunburn because he was lying on the beach in his imagination. And uh, as long as he was in hypnosis, the tremor stopped. Now, it was not a ultimate treatment for Parkinson's disease, uh, but it did prepare him to have the surgery that he needed. So let's look at other uses for hypnosis. Um, it, uh, apparently, it can regulate mind-body interactions. Tell us about the studies with the stomach acid and the, how it sure. may impact there. Sure. So with a colleague, Ken Klein, who uh, is a gastroenterologist, we um, uh, put down a nasogastric tube so we could measure the secretion of stomach acid. And then the first part of the experiment, I took a group of highly hypnotizable people first thing in the morning and had them eat imaginary meals for an hour. 
So we took a culinary tour of the Bay Area. One woman, after 30 minutes, said, let's stop. I'm full eating these imaginary meals. And we found that they had an 89% increase in gastric acid secretion, just eating imaginary food, not actually eating food. So the next experiment we did was we had them imagine anything that was pleasant and relaxing that didn't involve food or drink. And there we had a 39% decrease in gastric acid secretion. So Ken said, I want to try one other thing. And he injected them with pentagastrin, which stimulates maximal output from the cells in the stomach that produce gastric acid. And even when we did that, we had a significant 19% reduction in gastric acid secretion when they were in hypnotic relaxation. So None of us, first of all, think that mentally we can control gastric acid secretion anyway, but we can. And number two, um, he it, it showed uh, that you could change it in either direction. You could increase or decrease uh, the secretion of gastric acid. That's very interesting because uh, the antacid medications, a lot of the times when we get gastric reflux, it could be because we have... Uh, too little stomach acid versus too much. So, I mean, yeah. I think hypnosis sounds like a better approach to me. Uh, I, agree. I agree with you. Absolutely. So for PTSD, uh, what did you find on your research with Vietnam vets? Well, we found that um, if you think about it, there's much about the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder that have an analogy to certain hypnotic states. In particular, during trauma, People go into a dissociative state. Most rape victims report that um, they experience the, the assault as if they were floating above their body, feeling sorry for the person being attacked beneath them. Um, many people during earthquakes or in combat experience a kind of detachment that's rather odd. They say, I was strangely calm. I don't know why I was. I just did what I had to do. And later on, the feelings start to catch up with them. So the process of dissociation is a natural part of our defenses against overwhelming trauma. So it makes sense that being able to reaccess a state like that will help you in the necessary process of working through those memories and kind of in a controlled way, re-exposing yourself to trauma. So most of the psychotherapies for PTSD involve some kind of structured re-exposure to traumatic experiences. The difference being that you're now in control of what you're doing. The essence of trauma is helplessness. Uh, and it's not fear or pain or sadness, it's helplessness. And so there, uh, something happens over which you suddenly have no control over your body, and that's a terrifying thing for people. So people would rather feel guilty than helpless. They'd rather blame themselves for an event they really didn't control. And in hypnosis, you can go back, dissociate your somatic, your physical reaction from the mental one, so you can keep your body floating safe and comfortable, but um, allow your brain to re-engage in a traumatic experience. I, I had a woman come to me recently who was going to have her own child for the first time. And she said, I need to work through something. I was sexually abused by my grandfather uh, when I was a, a little girl, when I was four. And I'm afraid that if I don't have a better understanding of what he did to me, um, you know, I'll freak out when my child becomes that age. And it is true that people sometimes identify very intensely when their children get to be an age where they suffered some kind of trauma. And so I had her imagine herself somewhere safe and comfortable. She liked hot tubs. So I imagined her being in the hot tub, your body is warm and safe, and the walls of the tub will protect you. But picturing her grandfather and what he started to do to her. And the interesting thing was that she didn't really come up with any new recollections of what happened. She knew, she remembered him initiating the abuse, hugging her to his body, starting to kiss her, but he, she didn't remember anything after that. And, um, but she came out of the hypnosis and said, you know what? I don't really need to know exactly what he did to me. I know that he did something awful. And, and I pointed out to her how much better a parent she already would be for her child than her parents and grandparents were to her. And she said, I don't need to know it. I can deal with it. So now it's you, a matter of being able to revisit it in a way that gives you an enhanced sense of control over your, at least your recollection of what happened. Now, you said in the past that trauma tends to make the vets hypnotizable. So that's one uh, example of how the trait of hypnotizability can change over time. Well, 
We're not sure about that. We did, you're right, we did a study. I, I appreciate it. You've, you've read my work very carefully. Thank you for that. Um, we did show that people with PTSD, and others have shown this too, tend to be more highly hypnotizable than other psychiatric patient groups. We don't know for sure whether it's that the trauma makes them more hypnotizable or that more hypnotizable people are more vulnerable to getting PTSD. In one study we found of the Oakland Berkeley firestorm some years ago, we found that people who dissociated more actually tended to endanger themselves more, that they would you know, cross police lines to get a closer look at the fire instead of getting the hell out. And this is often the case, sadly, that many people um, who have suffered trauma can get themselves re-traumatized. It's not that they want to be hurt, but they can accept levels of danger that most of the rest of us just wouldn't accept. It's like battered wives who, you know, you take one look at that husband, you don't want to be within 100 miles of him. And she'll say, if I just cooked dinner right and I do this right and that right, he won't get angry and he won't hurt me again. So the the dissociation is a protection, but it can also be a danger. And so I think part of it is that some people who can protect themselves too well from the initial pain and shock uh, will allow themselves to stay in situations they ought to get the hell out of. Now, you've also said that in, in your studies, it helped one quarter of the people who are smokers to stop, but it wasn't right. as successful in alcohol and drugs because their brains are sort of fogged up. Is that correct? Well, that's right. So let me explain the, the, the smoking outcome. So that uh, technique I mentioned a few minutes ago, I just focus on for my body, smoking is a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. Um, single session, taught them to practice self-hypnosis if they had an urge to smoke. Half the people we saw stopped smoking right away. Half of them didn't touch a cigarette in two years. So we got one out of four long-term abstinence, which is better than most other treatments, including Nicorette patches and all that for smoking. Uh, so uh, it is the case that you can help people um, uh, restructure the way they approach the problem of smoking and stop. Alcohol and other drugs are more difficult because while they're drinking, they're not thinking clearly, and that can inhibit people's ability to concentrate in this focused way. So while I've had some occasional success for people with alcohol and drug abuse, it's less consistent than it is for smokers. Now, you've had some incredible successes in pain. For example, yeah. the Elvira Lang and studies in Lancet uh, showed right. that there is less medication, less anxiety, took less time, less costful, and the staff were a lot more relaxed in some very painful procedures. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It was a randomized clinical trial, 241 patients. And the ones they all had access to IV analgesia, to opiates. But the ones who were taught self-hypnosis had by the end of uh, the second hour, their pain ratings were one out of 10, and in the standard care group, it was five out of 10. They had no anxiety at all. I was afraid they died by the end of two hours because they were just, had, their anxiety ratings were zero, and it was five or six out of 10 for the standard care. They had fewer complications, and it took 17 minutes less time on average. And you're right, the staff felt better as, as well as the patients. It even saved $338 of procedure because you got more use of the procedure rooms when you used hypnosis. Now, if we had a drug that did that, every hospital in the country would be using it. Um, but um, there, there's nothing to, uh, to market. So um, uh, unfortunately, it's not as widely used as it should be. Wow. So, I mean, some of the main culprits in the disease progression would be inflammation, uh, uh, bad, unhealthy gut, oxidative stress. Does hypnosis help with that? Well, we don't know. We're, we're studying that. And there is some evidence that hypnosis uh, can actually be associated with reducing stress-related inflammatory processes like um, uh, cellular um, reaction to uh, injection of antigens, so like a TB skin test, that you can reduce the cellular response um, to antigens that you expose the body to. And it makes sense that um, some of these pro-inflammatory cytokines that are secreted when there's an inflammatory process going on might indeed be stress-related. The other thing is that they create mental stress. So there's, there's growing evidence that the, the reason you feel so um, depressed, depression-like sin, syndromes or sickness syndrome, 
when you have the flu is that you've got elevated levels of these cytokines. So you feel weak, you don't sleep well, but you don't have much energy, you don't feel like eating, um, which is a lot like depression. So we're learning more and more that there is an interaction between the brain and the immune system such that um, it's possible that under stress, inflammatory activities may increase and that the inflammatory cytokines may in turn hamper the brain's ability to deal with stress. A couple of other pathways that are possible is hypnosis, I think, can help with heart rate variability, soothing the parasympathetic system, and help with sleep. And poor sleep is known as a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease, with the abnormal cortisol killing off our natural killer cells. And so helping with sleep and with the parasympathetic system seem to be two pathways which would help us in our healing. That's absolutely true. And our research and others have shown that Cancer patients who don't sleep well, who sleep inefficiently, keep waking up during the night, um, actually die sooner than patients who get a good night's sleep. So one very important thing I tell cancer patients is, you know, do what your grandmother told you to. Eat well, sleep well, and get plenty of exercise because those are things that will help your body cope with cancer. And one of the things that sleep does is that it improves vagal tone, the parasympathetic activity. It's why, you know, you get, you shouldn't be reading your email at 11 o'clock. You get a nasty email and you think, oh God, what am I going to do? And you get a night's sleep and the next morning you just take care of it because the self-soothing ability of the parasympathetic nervous system, which helps us to sleep at night, uh, is amplified uh, the next day when you've had a good night's sleep. And and having better parasympathetic activity also predicts longer survival with cancer. Well, you've done a lot of work with cancer patients. For example, you've, uh, you've cited some studies that social isolation in cancer patients is equivalent to the risk of cigarette smoking and high cholesterol. Right, right. We're social creatures, and uh, the studies we've done in particular that have now been confirmed by a number of other people is that if you randomize even advanced cancer patients to weekly what we call supportive expressive group psychotherapy, where they deal with their fears, their anger, fear, and sadness, they form connections with other people who have similar problems, they reorder priorities in life, they deal directly with fears of dying and death, and they learn self-hypnosis. Um, you can reduce their pain by 50% over the course of a year on the same and very low amounts of medication. And it turns out that they actually live longer when they're randomized to this kind of emotional support. One of your, your favorite, one of my favorite comments that you said is, for men, uh, the social support and integration is found in marriage. And for women, social integration is found in not being married. That's interesting. Yeah, well, yeah it's the, 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 the kind of social support that seems to confer the best Health protection is relationships with other women. So with women, it's uh, uh, friends and sisters and mothers, uh, whereas for men, it's it's being married. So uh, having a relationship with a woman is good for your health, regardless of your own gender, and having a relationship with a man doesn't do your health that much good, regardless of your own gender. Oh, that's interesting. So you're doing research on the decision to have a double mastectomy. Can you tell me about your research? Sure. Thank you. So one of the stress-related problems that many people face when they're diagnosed with cancer is what to do initially. Do you have surgery, radiation, uh, chemotherapy? And there are often many choices, and it's a path you can only go down once. And it turns out now that 13% of all women and a third of women under 40 are having prophylactic, that is bilateral mastectomies, even though they only have cancer in one breast. And there was a big increase in that when Angelina Jolie, who is a BRCA1 mutation carrier, decided to have both breasts off uh, in addition to having her ovaries and, I think, fallopian tubes removed. Um, and the ovary removal is really necessary if you're a mutation carrier. But for the majority of women who don't have the mutation, having the second breast off has no effect on survival. And yet there are a lot of women doing that. We think it has to do with the way they manage anxiety. So it's another brain utilization problem, and we're actually imaging them in the scanner and trying to understand the differences in anxiety management among the women who choose to have both breasts off versus those who choose to have more conservative surgical treatment of their breast cancer. And so we're now in, enrolling women with this kind of problem and trying to better understand what are the factors that go into these decisions and how can we better help them with it? 
That's interesting. So let's get to some of the practical elements of of, of hypnosis. Can a non-believer be hypnotized? Sure. It has nothing to do with belief. So I've seen a lot of people who don't believe in hypnosis think it's nonsense. And they just can't tell me why it is that their left hand is up in the air. And when you pull it down, it goes floating right back up because that's what the instruction was. I remember I was doing a demonstration in front of a class with this particularly arrogant, skeptical scientist who said, this is bullshit, you know. And so as I'm doing it, I pull his hand down and it floats back up. And he said, there must be some rational explanation for this. And the whole place cracked up. So, so yes, it doesn't have to do with skepticism at all. It has to do with ability. Uh, we've got like two and a half minutes left. So would you like sure. to add any points, make any summary points, and let people know how to get a hold of you? Sure. Well, um, we um, the, the main thing, I think, is people tend to think of hypnosis as losing control when, in fact, it's enhancing control. It's learning how to better control your own body, your thoughts, your perceptions of things like pain and, and anxiety. And so it's really a tool for enhancing control, not losing control. So it's nothing to be afraid of. It's a real asset in learning to use your brain better to help your body and and your brain cope with the stresses of life and medical illness of various kinds. Uh, we run the Center for Integrative Medicine at Stanford, 650-498-5566, uh, uh, and several of us do hypnosis there. Um, we are also... Um, recruiting women for the study of uh, breast cancer treatment decisions, and we welcome contact from people who might be interested in the study, and that number is 650-723-6421. Okay, and hypnosis seems to be a very valuable tool that we can uh, learn to do on ourselves so we don't need to come into a clinician's office. Isn't that correct? That's exactly right. I often see people just once. I, I assess the problem, measure their hypnotizability, teach them how to use it. They record the, that part of the treatment session on their smartphones, and they can do it on their own. That's exactly right. It doesn't mean you have to keep going back over and over again. It's a skill that you can learn to use for yourself in dealing with the problems you're facing. Well, we're right, winding down to a close right now, so I'd like to thank okay. you very much and tell the You're audience, welcome. look into hypnosis and all, all sorts of approaches. Uh, do your research, work with your physician, and do we research so you can help yourself and others, and be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.